I had to work out who got on where, so which combinations of characters could see each other at which points. And I knew, I knew how much time the train took to go from one station to the next. So I had to work out how much action could realistically take place in each scenario because they only had like three stops to travel and what could happen in three stops. And I sort of find that if you create these boundaries for yourself, it forces you to be really creative within the boundaries, if you like. So that, for me, was a fascinating part of writing this story, is, is having, having those boundaries that I had to stick to. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry, along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us. And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Today, we present another in our series of Books You Should Know. Our guest today is Claire Pooley, author of the crowd-pleasing Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, which New York Times bestselling author Tara Conklin says is heartwarming, funny, a delicious dive into the profound and ridiculous modern world in which we live. Claire Pooley reminds us why we need each other. I am Ron Block. And I'm Mary Kay Andrews. Claire Pooley graduated from Cambridge University and then spent 20 years in the heady world of advertising before becoming a full-time writer. Her debut novel, The Authenticity Project, was a New York Times bestseller and has been translated into 29 languages. Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting is her second novel. Claire lives in Fulham, London with her husband, three children, and two border terriers. Welcome, Claire. Thank you. It's great to be here. I love it. Claire, you know how much I love the book. Can you tell our listeners what the book is about and then kind of what the book is really about? What's at the heart of the book? Oh, well, the book is, is about a group of people who share nothing in common apart from their daily commute. So they all take the same train to work in the morning and, and again at the end of the day. Um, and the train line goes from Hampton Court Station to Waterloo in London. And these people see each other day in, day out, and they sort of recognize each other and they give each other nicknames and they make heinous assumptions about each other, most of which turn out to be totally incorrect. But what they never do is speak, because that's the first rule of, of commuting in London, certainly, is that you never, ever talk to your fellow commuters. You don't even make eye contact, because that would be kind of weird. So they never speak until this one morning in the very first chapter of the book, where one of the commuters inhales, uh, accidentally inhales a grape and chokes and nearly dies. And one of his fellow commuters gives him the Heimlich maneuver and saves his life. Um, and this one action gets the rest of them talking. And then the story really follows on from there. What happens when this group of people start getting to know each other? So that's what it's about. What it's really about, to answer your part B, is it's really about the magic that happens when you 
start to engage with strangers, which is something we, we rarely do in, in real life, particularly when you start to engage with strangers who are nothing like you in terms of age, background, race, sexuality, whatever. And, uh, and it's also about the things that people hide. You know, the fact that what we think we know about people is very often completely wrong. You know, everybody is hiding something. Everybody is struggling with something. And that is certainly true of my main five characters. They all have something they're hiding. Yes. Oh my God. That's perfectly said. Perfectly said. Um, why set it on a train? Oh, you know what? I, I was writing this during the pandemic and, uh, you know, we were all stuck in our separate little boxes. And I really, you know, I obviously miss friends and family, but as well as that, I really miss strangers. I really miss being surrounded by lots of people I didn't know. And and I thought back to my days of commuting into the centre of London and out again, you know, every day and how, you know, at the time, I thought, you know, this is uncomfortable. It takes up loads of time. It's smelly. It's noisy. It's, it's no fun. And I look back at it with a real sense of nostalgia. And I remembered how I used to see the same people over and over again. And I gave them nicknames and I imagined little stories about them and what they did when they weren't on my train. But I never spoke to them. And I started thinking, you know, what would happen? If I had done, and that's really why I wanted to write that this book. I wanted to place myself back in that pre-pandemic world where we could, you know, happily crowd into tiny spaces with lots of people breathing on <laughs> us and not panic. <laughs> Claire, I have to confess to you that I didn't know about uh, Iona until I was in New York in the fall. No, I was in New York early, in June. And I had dinner with my agent, whose name is Stuart Krzyzewski. And he happens to be married to your American editor, Pam Dorman. Ah. And Pam brought me a copy of Iona. And she said, Stu says, I'm not allowed to do this. But she handed me the book and she said, you're going to love it. And I did. I really, really, really did. Oh, thank you. Um, well, she has she has um, flawless taste. So when Pam Dorman tells you to read something, you read it. You can get right on it. <laughs> but now when I Googled you, as one does, I found references to Claire Pooley, creator of a blog called Mummy Was a Secret Drinker. And then I fell down the rabbit hole and I got distracted while reading your disarmingly honest and funny blog about your decision to quit drinking. And then along the way, you wrote a nonfiction book called The Sobriety Project. Now, this is a very long way of asking. I'm just wondering if you, if there's any connection between your newfound sobriety and just the decision to tackle fiction, first The Authenticity Project and now Iona. Yes, I mean, really one thing led to another in that, um, you know, when I quit drinking seven years ago, my... You know, my life by that stage was a complete mess. And actually, from the outside, if you looked at my social media, my Facebook or my Instagram, it all looked really perfect. But the truth was very different because I had this terrible um, alcohol addiction, uh, which nobody, not even my closest friends and family, really knew the truth about. And I was too ashamed of the mess I got myself into to 
talk to anybody in real life to talk to my 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 husband or my gp or sorry gen, uh, my doctor or let alone alcoholics anonymous i started writing the blog really as a means of therapy and i poured my heart out into this this blog every day i i talked about you know how what i was going through how i was feeling how i'd got to this place the things i'd learned about alcohol addiction and so on and then the blog went viral amazingly because i didn't promote it at all i was far too ashamed to do that i was writing under a pseudonym the blog went viral and then became a book called the sober diaries and by this stage writing was my new addiction and i wanted to carry on writing but i didn't want to carry on writing about my own life because my kids by this stage were teenagers and you know i i i felt it wasn't really fair on them and i i'd sort of been there done that so i decided to try writing fiction but actually my novels are very much influenced by what i've been through so the authenticity project was was really based on the fact that the that nobody really tells the truth about their lives and you know i certainly didn't you know i i uh, my life was very different in reality from what it looked like and me telling the truth about my life in this blog completely transformed everything including the lives of everybody that read it and that was the inspiration for the authenticity project and indeed one of the characters in the authenticity project suffers with alcohol addiction and drug addiction so so it's it's still very close to home and iona also in many ways is inspired by my own life so i'm i'm writing fiction now but still very much based in the real in the real world and and my real experience was it a huge leap for you to come out as a novelist i mean or had you, since you'd already published a non-fiction project did that make it easier to say look i, I wrote a, a novel i mean i think the hardest bit was coming out from behind my pseudonym initially you know when the sober diaries was first published it was just just you know for the three nights before that book came out i had this recurring nightmare that i was walking down a street completely naked and everybody around me was fully clothed and and that's what it felt like it felt really exposing it felt like i was taking all my clothes off in public writing fiction isn't as scary as that in a way because you're hiding behind your own characters so it allows you to explore the things that really matter to you the things that you know make you happy the things that make you angry the things you're frustrated by but you can do it through the eyes of somebody else and that makes it much less exposing in many ways so so i think that was easier for me than the non-fiction that's incredible thank you for sharing your story i know that's not always the easiest thing to do but we sure appreciate it back to iona a little bit though each of the characters in the book they go on a personal journey uh, of their own, but they also go forward in a collective one, really under the influence of Iona. Can you talk about creating the characters, where they came from, and how you developed their journeys? Oh, uh, I mean, the, the first, the character I, I came to first was really Iona herself. And she was was very much inspired by the woman I, I guess I wanted to be um, in that uh, there's there's a poem called uh, When I Grow Old I Will I Shall Wear Purple I think it's by Jenny Jones and and I remember when I was in my twenties and I thought that 
um, 57 was an incredibly old age. Now, of course, I think 57 is really young, <laughs> but, but then I thought it was terribly old. And, and I remember thinking, uh, you know, reading that poem and thinking that's the sort of woman I want to be when I'm, I'm that sort of age. You know, I want to be eccentric and I don't want to care what other people think about me. And I want to be the sort of person that everybody pays attention to. And and that's, I guess, where Iona came from, because she really is a, a larger than life character. And she doesn't realize that everybody notices her. She thinks she's invisible, but she really isn't. <laughs> and and the other characters sort of followed on from there. You know, I, I sort of started thinking, well, what sort of people would you meet on a train day in, day out? And gradually these characters started coming to life in my head. And, uh, you know, I, I always start from I always start by asking the question, what do these people find difficult? What are they struggling with? Because I think that's much, much more interesting than starting from what are these people good at? What are their strengths? You know, strengths right. aren't interesting. Weaknesses are far more interesting than strengths. So with each of them, I started with what, what's, what's this person's weakness? What, what do they most want to change about their lives? And, and I, I took it from there. Uh, I'm just struck by the fact that both your novels seems to have seem to have themes of the ways in which communities can come together in unusual ways to help and heal. In the Authenticity Project, the, the protagonist, Julian, is deeply lonely. So he decides to reveal his truths in a notebook, which he leaves in a cafe. The cafe owner finds it and decides to try to figure out who who the notebook belongs to, right? Yes, that's right. Absolutely. I'm just finding out about that. So now I have to go back and catch up. And then Iona, formerly the it girl of London society. Now she thinks of herself as the past it girl, at, as you said, at age 57. <laughs> She's kooky kind of and prickly. But despite outward appearances, she's hiding her own secrets. And she seems to be hiding, hanging on by a really slim thread. So talk Talk, if you would, a little bit about the community and why we need them. And, and I guess maybe during COVID, we figured out, wow, we really need our communities. Yeah, I mean, it, it struck me that we live in an era where we're more connected than ever to people via the Internet, via social media and so on. You know, we have thousands and thousands of connections. And yet, you know, more and more of us are lonely. If you look at the statistics, particularly in big cities, you know, even amongst young people, even amongst people in their 20s, you know, there are huge numbers of people who say that they are incredibly lonely, that they only have, you know, a handful of close friends. And I, I think we're all craving real life connections. And, you know, you look back to the sort of lives that our parents and our grandparents led, where, you know, everybody lived in, in communities that helped each other out. You know, you, have, you know, if somebody was in trouble, if somebody needed, uh, needed, needed money or a lift or, 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 or help with, with, um, nursing care, whatever, you know, the community would rally around them. And, and these days, you know, particularly in our big cities, certainly in somewhere like London, you know, often, you don't even know the names of your neighbours. So I think with both of my novels, I really wanted to explore the power of community and and what you know what we can gain from engaging with with the sort of people that we wouldn't normally engage with. So you know, and again, 
I sort of feel like we all increasingly live in these echo chambers where we surround ourselves by people who are very like us and they have the same opinions as us and they have the same lifestyle as us. And I, I don't think that's necessarily very healthy. I think it's much, we have so much to learn from people who are not like us at all. Agreed. Wow. That's so true. So true. Um, I want to let's kind of throw this in here. But without giving any spoilers, can we chat about the ending of this book? It's so perfect in my mind. Was that always the ending that you had in mind? Um, vaguely. I mean, it's it's funny. They're, they say that there are two types of writer, don't they? There are plotters and pantsers. So have mm -hmm. you heard that expression? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. You know, pantsers uh, meaning, you know, you fly by the seat of your pants. Um, and... I'm sort of, I'm, in a way, I'm in between. You know, when I when I start a novel, I, I tend to know the beginning and the end and sort of certain points along the way. But I leave I leave the rest of it sort of to evolve by itself because I sort of feel that's where the magic happens. You know, and the when those you, when occasionally you get those amazing moments where your characters just start doing their own thing and they surprise you and they they start walking off the page and going on their own journeys it's, and that's really magical and I think that's where you know the really exciting stuff happens so yeah I knew roughly what I wanted the end to be but a lot of what happened along the way and how we got there you know just evolved by itself so yeah I think that's that's for me is the real fun I would hate to have everything pinned down to to too much at the beginning I was thinking about how how timely the young girl that character what's her name again Martha Martha Martha's been the vic victim of um revenge porn of course she's young and she goes to a, a posh school and now she's an outcast. I thought that was just so timely and so prescient. Now, did your teenagers inspire any of that? I don't mean your te teenagers did revenge porn, but. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I think I, I mentioned that I use writing still as, as therapy and I use it as a way of exploring, you know, things that bother me and things I'm scared about and things, you know, that I want to make sense of. And, uh, and, with I have three teenagers and technology and the way they use technology terrifies me and it's not this is not something thank goodness that so far has happened to any of them but it's certainly something that I worry about and I know teenagers who have had real problems with with um, images being shared and that sort of thing and poor Martha you know she is desperate to fit in. Uh, she's 15. She's desperate to fit in. And she uh, likes this boy at school. And uh, she describes herself as uh, she thinks she's the only virgin in her school apart from this guy who is a sort of computer geek. And they're both sort of slight, slightly on the edge of everything. Um, and he tells he asks her to send uh, send him a, a, a nude pic and he says that that's what you do if you like a boy and that's what everybody else does. And she believes it and sends it to him. And he doesn't mean, you know, he doesn't do any, doesn't think he's doing anything wrong. He just is so excited by actually having received this pic that he sends it to his best friend and his best friend uploads it to the, the, the year group group chat. And 
you can see how easy it is for that sort of thing to happen. He quite quickly realizes he's done something wrong, takes it down, but by then it's everywhere. And poor old Martha is being talked about by everybody and is being bullied and is more of an outcast than ever. Um, and, you know, that, that sort of scenario is just so prevalent these days. However much you tell teenagers to be careful with, you know, with their, their, their social media and not to post anything that they wouldn't want their mother or their grandmother to see, et cetera, et cetera. These things still happen. So yeah, that's inspired by my fears, I guess. <laughs> I think we do write our fears into our novels. <laughs> I, I didn't realize how afraid I was of fire until I'd had three fires and three consecutive novels. <laughs> oh. I hope you haven't had a fire in real life, though. No, you? <laughs> being burned. But let's talk about something more pleasant, and that's that little French bulldog, Lulu. <laughs> she is Iona's to and her total devotion to Lulu. Now you're a dog. You have two dogs, so I'm assuming you're a dog person too. Oh yes, I am. Yes, I, I think every novel has to have a dog. <laughs> I sort of agree. We have three English setters at our house. Oh, wonderful! Tell me how you came to decide that Lulu was a French bulldog, or did you just always know Iona had a French bulldog? Well, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you you do this too. You know, you start building a character in your head and. Um, and I sort of thought, you know, she's, she's a sort of woman who has, she has to have a dog. She has, she doesn't have any kids. Um, you know, and, and, but I felt that, uh, that she would be a dog lover. She was just that sort of person. And then you just, I, you know, you scroll through in your head the sort of dog that would fit with this sort of character. And, you know, it was, it, and I tried all sorts and I just, and they just didn't seem right until I landed on the French bulldog and, you know, that was, that was it. That was the magical pairing. And it's a bit like, you know, I remember trying to work out who her partner would be. And I went through all sorts of images of various men in my head thinking, would it be this sort of guy or would it be that sort of guy? I thought, no, it's not a guy at all. <laughs> and that's how she became a lesbian. It was just, it just didn't fit with her to be with a guy. It just sort of, you know, in the same way it wouldn't fit with her to have a golden retriever. Um, so, so yeah, you, you sort of piece together these details as, as the characters come together, I find. And then, and then, you know, each of those details gives them more depth. Well, plus you can, it's, you can easily carry a French bulldog on a train. Maybe yes. not so easily. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Lulu and Lulu is just so, had her own little seat and everything. <laughs> so uh, one of the uh, major themes also in the book, as I read it, was second chances. Everybody seemed to have gotten a second chance. And um, you've shared some of your own stories, which makes me now understand better why that was a theme in the book. Can you talk about that just a little bit more? And then you can tie that into actually writing your second novel. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I I like... Uh, I. I'm intrigued by second chances and by the idea of sort of a magnificent second act, if you like. And I guess, I guess this comes from when I was working in advertising. I was uh, 30. I was the youngest woman on the board and I felt like the world was my oyster and, and I had, you know, years left in the industry. And I got to 40 and suddenly I looked around and I was one of the only women left in the agency. And I thought, you know, where have all the women gone? And 
by this stage, people were starting to treat me like I was a bit of a dinosaur. And yet, you know, I felt that I had years of, of accumulated wisdom and I was far better at my job than I'd ever been before. And it makes me very angry the way that when men get old and grey, they seem to gain gap gravitas, whereas women tend to become invisible and are seen as being irrelevant. And I'm fascinated by women who turn that into a magnificent second act and decide to have a whole new second career that is often way more interesting and successful than their first one. And that's really what I wanted for Iona in, in this book is a magnificent second act. And for me, my writing career is my magnificent second act and I'm enjoying it hugely and far more than I ever did did my first career. So, so yes, I think second chances and, and second acts are a wonderful thing in life. You are Iona. <laughs> you know, Iona is such a character that at first, I don't know. I don't know if I can relate to her. But then she becomes this modern anti-mame for the commuting crowd. She sparkles and she's such a refreshing character. Obviously, you're not a 57-year-old lesbian with um, a French bulldog that you carry on the train every day to work and sort of a complicated back. Well, maybe, you, I, well, I know you have a complicated backstory because You've told us that in that great blog, but was there somebody that you looked at, maybe, I don't know, an actress or a public figure that you thought that's what Iona looks or sounds like? Oh, you know, I, I'm not sure there there really is because um, she's, she's I, I don't think I've ever met anyone quite like Iona. I think that's what I love about her is that she is so unusual. She's, she's a sort of... She's an amalgamation of, of a number of different influences, I think. And, you know, I, I think possibly the closest character I've, I've come to, to Iona is, I, I don't know how popular Absolutely Fabulous uh, was in, oh, yes. in, in, the, in the United States, but if yes, you remember Joanna right. Lumley in, in Absolutely yes. Fabulous, um, so who uh, played Patsy, um, you know, in a way... In a way, she's a bit like Patsy in my head. That's uh, you know, that's that's sort of how I visualised her sometimes with that sort of mad beehive. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about that handbag, the magic handbag. <laughs> One of the characters in the book secretly names Iona the magic handbag lady because she's just always pulling astonishing items out of that bag. Now, tell us about that. And and do you have a magic handbag and what's in it? <laughs> No, you know, I don't. I'm I'm not organized enough to have a magic handbag, but I know women who do, you know, and they're the sort, sort of people who, you know, if your kid falls over and scrapes their knee, they have antiseptic and, and they have a plaster or Band-Aid and, you know, they have a, a, a suite to make them feel better and, and they have everything that you could possibly need. Um, and I was, I was never as organized as that, but, uh, but I'm I'm always fascinated by people's handbags because I think you can tell so much about somebody by what they keep in their handbag. And uh, and there's a photographer actually who takes great pictures. He gets people to just empty their handbags and he arranges the contents of the handbags and takes a picture of them. And he has he turned it into a whole show. And it's fascinating because you look at all these objects and you think, well, what does you know what does that say about the owner of this bag? And you know, I had such fun with Iona thinking about what she might keep in, in her handbag. So she always has 
she in the morning she has a flask of of, of tea and she has a, a china cup and a saucer because she doesn't like to drink out of anything other than proper china. And in the evening she has a, a gin and tonic and and a little bag of of lemon slices. But yeah, she has she has uh, things for every eventuality hidden in there. <laughs> I did a social media post earlier in the week. I was cleaning my closet and then I had to clean out my handbags. And I dumped them all on my bed and and I said, I posted on social media, this is what I found. And it's the most unusual thing I found was a hacksaw blade. <laughs> what was that doing in there? <laughs> well, my husband was in the middle of a home improvement project and he gave me the blade and said, go to Home Depot and I need a blade just like this. I had, I don't know, seven or eight Sharpies and a couple of campaign buttons. And I asked people, you know, what's the most unusual thing in your purse? And I was astounded by how many people responded to that. <laughs> yeah, I, I that's think a it's magic a magic handbag. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other thing I had fun playing with was uh, how everybody had different nicknames for Iona. So so Martha calls her the magic handbag lady, but another character calls her mad dog woman and uh, somebody or crazy dog lady. And, uh, you know, they, they all are all uh, the rainbow lady because of the way that she wears really bright colors. They all have something different that they've picked up about her. Um, and and I think that's that's a real fascinating thing about life is how you know, we can all see the same person very differently. Um, mm -hmm. You know, even though, even though they're, they're this, you know, they are the same person, we all have completely different views of them. That's true. I love, I love the names that everybody gave each other in the book. <laughs> um, so another standout for me, of course, you've already talked about the human connection factor that you were thinking about when you were putting them on a train and a little bit about writing during the pandemic. But you, can you flesh that out a little bit more, what writing the book was like for you? And did it change how you looked at the world other than the human connection? Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I loved, I loved the discipline of having to stick to the train line because actually right in the front of the book, there's a little map of the train line which shows which stations each of the characters lives lives at. And that I kept with me at all times because I had to work out who got on where so which combinations of characters could see each other at which points. And I knew... I knew how much time the train took to go from one station to the next. So I had to work out how much action could realistically take place in each scenario because they only had like three stops to travel and what could happen in three stops. And I sort of find that if you create these boundaries for yourself, it forces you to be really creative within the boundaries, if you like. So that for me was a fascinating part of writing this story is is having having those boundaries that I had to stick to and uh yeah and and then and then I I just loved the idea of working out not only how you know their physical journeys but their emotional journeys so each of them I wanted to make sure went on a emotional journey also and ended up in a very different place at the end from from the place where they started so, yeah, it was great fun. It was great fun writing it. 
That brings me to the question that just came into my mind. Are you familiar with that train line? Is that the one you used to commute on? Yeah, I mean, I didn't commute on it, but I took that train to school when I was uh, when I was a teenager. So I lived in Hampton Court, where where um, where Iona lives, and I went to school in Wimbledon, which is on that line. So uh, so yeah, I know that line well, and and you know it was. Uh, uh, it was funny because I, I based the book on the, the the train as I remembered it, but I couldn't go on the train because we were in the pandemic and it was sort of nobody was going on trains. And so as soon as things got better, I, I thought, I've got to take the train. And I was really nervous about it because I thought, well, what if it's not like I've written it? So I, I go to Waterloo Station and I get on the train and I look around and think, there are no tables. <laughs> and in my story, there's always a table. They always sit at a table. But at some point, they'd taken the tables out of the train. So I thought, well, either I have to change everything or I just have to, uh, you know, to cover it somehow in the acknowledgements. And I, so in the author's note, I, I apologize to anyone who takes the train <laughs> now about the fact that I added tables that, that don't no longer exist. But that is a wonderful thing about fiction. You can make improvements to real life. <laughs> and in this case, I put the tray, the tables back. Definitely. I love it. Now, your book has been rightfully compared to Ted Lasso, here in the States anyway. Um, why do you think both of those storylines resonate with readers and viewers? Oh, you know what? I love Ted Lasso. So so I take that as, as such a compliment. Um, and, you know, I, I think... I, I, I think we've all lived through such a tough time. You know, we've both uh, politically and, you know, the pandemic and, you know, now we have the war in Ukraine over here and... It's been a really tough few years for everybody around the world. And, and I think we're all, we're all looking for things that just make us a bit happier. And, you know, I certainly, I, I couldn't write stories. I couldn't write a psychological thriller because I wouldn't want all that stuff going on in my head. You know? And I, I have to live with my characters for, you know, for months, a, a year, two years. And, you know, I, I want to live with I want to live with happy stories in my head. I want to sort of, you know, I, I want people to finish the book and feel better about the world and feel better about themselves. And and I think that's that's sort of what we all need. And that's what Ted Lasso does for all of us too. I think is, is you know, it makes us laugh. It makes us uh, it makes us sort of see that. Uh, kindness and and community are really great things. Absolutely right. Both both are exactly as you described. They're great. Um, a lot of people have noticed that there have been two different covers, one in in England and one in the States, and different titles. Can you, did you have any influence over those choices? You know what? I, I didn't realize until I, I started writing that the two areas that an author really has very little influence on are the title and the cover of their books. Um, and... I think the, the reason for that is because as an author, you are so close to the story that you can't see the wood for the trees often. And the publisher's job is to take your story and to position it to the public. And they know how to do that a lot better 
you know, usually than the author does. So I absolutely trust my publishers to, to you know, to suggest the the best sort of uh, best cover and and to to guide me on as far as titles go um, and in this case my UK publisher and my US publisher just had different opinions about what would appeal in their markets and it's funny the UK and the US are so similar in many ways but in some ways we're so different also and you know it's it's funny how different covers can be in those two markets but uh, and, and mine are totally different and the titles really very different too so yeah I find it fascinating well they work all right now everybody I think including myself and I'm sure Ron we want to know what's next what's what are you working on now it seems to me that this is this has all the ingredients for a great movie streamer whatever so can you tell us anything about that oh well um i have sold the tv and film rights to the authenticity project so i'm waiting to see what happens with that i haven't yet sold the film rights to uh, iona iverson so so sort of watch this space as far as that one goes you know i would love both to 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 be either tv or, or or movies i mean that that would be a real dream so so yes i hope that will that will happen one day but in the meantime i'm i'm sort of starting starting to write the third novel so um yeah which is a similar you know it's it's a similar feel good story with multiple characters but a very different different concept and different characters in this instance well i know i speak for myself and everybody who loved this book and authenticity mm-hmm. that we can't wait. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And I think that um, the TV rights for Iona ought to go to Joanna Lumley. It's a perfect part for her now <laughs> that you've brought her name into it. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. How can we ever thank you for joining us? This has been such a terrific conversation. And if there's anyone out there who hasn't had the opportunity to read Iona Iverson's Rules for Commuting, they certainly will now. Can you tell everyone where they can learn more about you and your work online? Sure. Um, I have a website, which is www.clairepooley.com. And actually, you spell my name without an I in it, C-L-A-R-E-P-O-O-L-E-Y. Um, and I'm on Instagram at Claire underscore Pooley and on Twitter at C Pooley Writer. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners. Claire's book is truly a book you should know. And if you'd like to help out indie bookstores and save a little cash, visit the friendsandfictionbookshop.org page and get your own copy. As always, on behalf of the Fab Four, we appreciate you tuning in. Please be sure to share the podcast with a friend. Thank you for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode. And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where our live Friends and Fiction show airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here. Produced by Autovita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.